Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening. In the last episode of our series on the French expedition to Egypt, we watched as Napoleon and his Army of the Orient embarked on a campaign into Syria in early 1799. Their objective was to capture the Ottoman stronghold at Acre, dislodge the Ottomans from the region, and secured the eastern flank of his Egyptian empire. The campaign ended disastrously. The French found the fortress city of Acre to be more impenetrable than they had anticipated. They put the city to siege, but with the British Navy able to resupply them, the defenders of Acre could have held out indefinitely. The French attackers, on the other hand, were in a bad way. They'd outrun their supply lines. They had no artillery with which to conduct a siege, and, moreover, their ranks were ravaged by the bubonic plague. On May 21st, Napoleon decided to cut his losses, and he ordered a full retreat. The trudge back to Egypt was slow and difficult. It took about a month for the army to return to Cairo. When they did return, however, they received a hero's welcome. Napoleon had, through his dispatches, led everyone to believe that the Syrian campaign had been a massive success. Upon returning to Egypt, Napoleon had received an update on the situation developing in Europe, and it did not look good. The armies of the Second Anti-French Coalition had dealt the French a series of defeats in Germany and Italy, and they were beginning to reverse the gains that the French had made during the War of the First Coalition. Napoleon had silently resolved to slip out of Egypt, return to Europe, and lead the armies of the Republic once more to victory in Italy. All the while, Napoleon maintained the pretense that he and his army were in Egypt to stay. During this time, he arranged a prisoner exchange with Sir Sidney Smith, the British Admiral. He inspected Cairo's fortifications, and he celebrated the Prophet Muhammad's birthday with the same pomp and circumstance as he had done a year prior. None knew of Napoleon's plans, save for those who were to accompany him back to France. His chief of staff, Berthier, his secretary, Bourrienne, Gaspard Mange and Louis Berthollet, and, finally, the man who was to escort them, Vice Admiral Joseph Antoine Gontome. Not even Napoleon's mistress, Pauline Forès, knew of his true intentions. On August 17th, this group left Cairo under the cover of darkness. They arrived in Alexandria five days later. Before embarking, Napoleon gave a parcel of documents to General Jacques Abdullah Manot, containing a declaration for the army, instructions for the divan, and instructions for General Clobert, who, unbeknownst to him, was to succeed Napoleon as the commander of the Army of the Orient. With that little bit of business taken care of, Napoleon and the rest of his party boarded the two frigates that would run them through the British blockade and bring them back to France. On October 9th, the frigates arrived at the French port town of Fréjus after a rather uneventful 47-day voyage. Napoleon made immediately for Paris. The public greeted the news of General Bonaparte's return with jubilation. All they knew of the Egyptian expedition had come from Napoleon's own highly exaggerated reports, and so they hailed him as a conquering hero. One man who was especially pleased at the news of his return was the director Emmanuel-Joseph Sayes, commonly known as the Abbe Sayes. The political scene in France had changed quite a bit while Napoleon was off gallivanting in the Orient. The civil upheaval that had resulted from the French defeats earlier in the year had convinced the Abbe Sayes that there was an urgent need to overthrow the Directory and put in its place a more powerful, robust executive body. The Abbe Sayes began to plan a coup d'etat, but to accomplish this, he figured he would need the support of a powerful and respected military figure. Initially, this military figure was to be General Barthélemy Joubert, the current commander of the Army of Italy. 
Unfortunately, Joubert was slain at the Battle of Novi two months prior. So, C.S. turned his sights towards Napoleon. It took some convincing from his younger brother Lucian, and from his friend, the foreign minister Talleyrand, both of whom were also in on the plot, but eventually Napoleon came around to the idea. The coup was carried out on the 9th of November, 1799. The coup of 18 Brumaire, so-called because of its date in the French Republican calendar, was a bloodless affair, but a fairly convoluted one. And, while the details are rather interesting, I will not delve into any more specifics as they aren't exactly pertinent to the narrative going forward. Suffice it to say, however, that Napoleon Bonaparte emerged from the coup as the head of the new executive branch, the consulate. He was, at this point, the most powerful man in all of France, and First Consul Bonaparte was now well on his way to becoming Emperor Napoleon I. For the time being, however, he was needed for the war effort in Italy. So, Napoleon rounded up a reserve army of 40,000 and led them across the Alpine passes into Italy. As one can imagine, General Colbert was furious to learn that not only had the commander-in-chief abandoned them, but that he was now in charge of this disaster of a campaign. Upon learning of this information, he's purported to have exclaimed, quote, That bugger has deserted us with his breeches full of shit. Well, once we get back to Europe, we'll rub his face in it. End quote. Clobert knew better than anyone that the French position in Egypt was untenable. The Army of the Orient was down to nearly half its original strength. Those who remained were thoroughly demoralized and homesick, their uniforms having been reduced to little more than rags. Not to mention that they were still owed about 10 million francs worth of back pay. While the bulk of the army had been away in Syria, the French had faced two separate rebellions in Egypt. The depleted and demoralized army was unlikely to succeed in the event of another Ottoman incursion or general uprising. Fortunately for Clebert, the missive that Napoleon had issued him authorized him to negotiate peace terms with the Ottomans and the British. Clebert had been a skeptic in regards to the Egyptian campaign for quite some time now, and now he had his chance to put an end to the whole charade. He made contact with Sir Sidney Smith in late January 1800. The two men met aboard Smith's flagship, the HMS Tiger, anchored off the coast of El Arish. Clobert and Smith signed an agreement which would allow the French to evacuate Egypt and allow the Ottomans to reoccupy the country. In exchange, the French would be allowed to keep their arms and return to Europe, completely unmolested. As it turns out, however, neither Clobert nor Smith were authorized by their respective governments to make any such peace agreement. When word of the Convention of El Arish, as it is known to history, reached London, British Prime Minister William Pitt refused to ratify it. He would accept nothing less than unconditional surrender, and Clobert refused to give it to him, and so the war would continue. Confident of victory, the Ottomans dispatched a massive force through Syria and directly towards Cairo, but Clobert was soon to prove that he was a far better general than a diplomat. On the 20th of March, Clobert's depleted forces met the Ottoman army at the Kyrene suburb of Heliopolis, and they won a decisive victory despite being outnumbered 4-1. to one. By the end of that week, the Ottoman army had been once again driven from Egypt. Unfortunately for Clobert, one of the Ottoman generals had managed to slip through the French lines into Cairo, where he spread the word that the French had been defeated. Spurred on by these false claims, the population of Cairo once more took to the streets in what is described as being more of an anarchy than an uprising. It took Clobert several weeks to restore order to the city. At this point, Clobert reached out to Murad Bey and offered him the governorship of Upper Egypt, if he agreed to switch his allegiance to France. Weary of his life on the run, 
Murad Bey agreed to this offer, although he died of the bubonic plague before he could take office. Meanwhile, in Europe, Napoleon's army made it successfully across the Alps and into the plains of Italy. The French set up camp outside the small Piedmontese village of Marengo, about midway between Turin and Genoa. On June 14th, the Austrians launched a surprise attack against the French, which met with great initial success. It seemed to Napoleon that the battle was lost, but there was still one hope. General Louis de Say. De Say had returned from Egypt on his own three days prior, and was placed in command of three infantry divisions. He and his men had been some distance off to the south when they heard the sounds of battle at Marengo. Arriving at the scene just as Napoleon was beginning to give in to despair, Desay is reported to have said, quote, The battle is lost, but there is still time to win another. End quote. At this, Desay personally led his men in a desperate charge into the Austrian flanks. The Austrians, at this point exhausted and caught off guard, broke ranks and fled. The Battle of Marengo was won, and Napoleon's position as First Consul had been secured. But this came at a great cost. The French suffered about 4,500 casualties. In the aftermath of the battle, General Desay's corpse was discovered among the dead. Napoleon had lost one of his most capable commanders and, what's more, he had lost a dear friend. That same day, July 14, 1800, General Colbert was taking a stroll outside his headquarters in Cairo when he was approached by a young Arab man, whom he took for a beggar. The beggar held out his right hand, as if asking for alms. As per local custom, Colbert offered him his hand, which the beggar would then kiss. Suddenly, the beggar violently grabbed Colbert's hand, produced a dagger from underneath his robes, and stabbed the general to death. After a brief scuffle with one of Colbert's bodyguards, the assassin fled the scene, but he was quickly tracked down by the French authorities. At his trial, the assassin's identity was revealed to be Suleiman al-Halabi. Al-Halabi was a 27-year-old man, originally hailing from Aleppo, in the province of Syria. He had been sent to Cairo to study at Al-Azhar University, only a year before the French arrived on the scene. Al-Halabi confessed to the crime and was found guilty. His sentence was to, quote, have his right hand burnt off and then to be completely impaled. He must remain exposed on the spike until his corpse had been devoured by vultures, end quote. A far cry from the supposedly humane executions carried out by the guillotine back in France. I will spare you the extra gruesome details of this execution that are found in many of the primary sources. The unfortunate Kleber was succeeded as governor of Egypt and commander of the Army of the Orient by General Abdullah de Manu, as he now called himself. Formerly known as Jacques Manu, he had converted to Islam after marrying the daughter of a wealthy Egyptian merchant. Due to his immersion in the local culture, Manu, unlike Kleber, was entirely convinced that Egypt should and must remain a permanent French colony. The portly, eccentric, 50-year-old Manu was not very well liked by the army. He had very little actual experience in the field, having earned his rank due to his noble title before the outbreak of the revolution. Manu's martial incompetence would soon be put on full display. In early March 1801, a British expeditionary force 15,000 strong landed on the outskirts of Alexandria. Instead of moving against them immediately, it took Manu three weeks to mobilize a force to face them. The ensuing battle, the Battle of Canop, was a bloodbath, and the French were routed. The British suffered 2,300 casualties, the French upwards of 4,000. The British commander, General Ralph Albercrombie, was fatally wounded, as was a French divisional general, Francois Lanouse. As he lay dying, Lanouse informed his commander-in-chief that he was, quote, 
not even competent enough to be an onion peeler in a Parisian restaurant, end quote. Following the defeat at Canop, Manoub withdrew the remainder of his men to Alexandria and holed himself up in the city. The new commander of the British Expeditionary Forces, John Helly Hutchinson, made preparations for a siege. Meanwhile, the rest of the British army, reinforced with a sizable contingent of Mamluks led by Ibrahim Bey, advanced on Cairo. Manu sent orders to the commander of the forces in the city, General Augustin Bouillard, that he and his men were to resist the enemy or die trying. These orders, which a contemporary describes as the words of a madman, arrived too late. On the 22nd of May, just as the British began preparations for what they expected to be a protracted siege of Cairo, General Belliard proposed a truce. After five days of negotiation, the French were allowed to march out of the city under arms, and the British occupied it without even having to fire a single shot. The French soldiers, along with a sizable contingent of civilians, including women and children, evacuated Cairo on July 15th, and were escorted by the British northward to the port of Rosetta, where they were allowed to board ships to return to France. Minot continued to put up resistance in Alexandria throughout the summer of 1801, believing right up until the end that reinforcements from France would arrive at any moment. To his credit, these hopes were not completely unfounded. Back in May, Napoleon had dispatched a squadron of seven ships containing 5,000 men under Vice Admiral Guntome to reinforce the Army of the Orient. However, an outbreak of plague aboard one of the ships delayed the operation. Guntome set off from Toulon once again a month later but promptly returned the next month after having captured a British frigate. Ultimately, only one French ship docked at Alexandria during the siege, a vessel carrying a troop of comedians, actresses, and other entertainers, just as Napoleon had promised in his missive to Colbert. These were not quite the reinforcements Manu was hoping for, and so he was forced to capitulate on September 2nd, 1801, accepting the same terms as Belliard. After three years, the French campaign in Egypt had been brought to an end. The Egyptian campaign was an unmitigated tactical and strategic failure for the French Republic. Sources vary on the number of French casualties, although the figure I have most often seen is 15,000 killed in action or dead from wounds, and another 15,000 dead from disease, dehydration, or other various natural causes. The number of native Egyptian, Mamluk, and Turkish casualties is harder to estimate. A surprising amount of sources are merely content in stating that several thousand died. The only concrete estimate I have seen was approximately 50,000. 40,000 Frenchmen had arrived in Egypt in 1798 with the dreams of great martial victories and limitless plunder to be had, only for less than half of that number to ignominiously slink back to France three years later, having completely failed to accomplish any of their goals. I would argue that three people, or groups of people, emerged from the aftermath of the French campaign in Egypt more or less victorious. The first of these people was a man named Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was an Albanian mercenary in the employ of the Ottoman Empire. The French had effectively brought centuries of Mamluk rule in Egypt to an end, and their withdrawal left behind a power vacuum. The Sublime Port saw this as an opportunity to finally assert their control over the region, but they were opposed by the remaining Mamluks, who wished to see a return of the pre-invasion status quo. The Ottomans dispatched a sizable contingent of troops to pacify the region, including Muhammad Ali's mercenary company. What follows is a convoluted series of events wherein Muhammad Ali played both sides against the other to eventually secure power for himself. These events are honestly deserving of their own series of episodes, and I will begin looking into the sources and hopefully writing it soon. 
Anyway, the Ottomans recognized Muhammad Ali's control over Egypt in 1805. Muhammad Ali's Egypt had a complex relationship with the Sublime Port in Constantinople. Legally speaking, Egypt remained a part of the Ottoman Empire. The title Muhammad Ali claimed for himself, and the title that was recognized by the Sublime Port, was that of Khedive, or Viceroy, meaning that he was still legally subordinate to the Sultan. Practically speaking, however, Egypt was independent in all but name. Muhammad Ali saw wide-ranging reforms to government institutions, and Egypt maintained its own military. Muhammad Ali lent military support to the Ottomans in their wars against Greek revolutionaries and the nascent Saudi state in Arabia, but he fought two wars against the Ottomans in the 1830s. The second group of people emerging victorious from the French campaign would obviously be the British. Muhammad Ali died in 1849. His successors, as the story all too often goes, were not as capable leaders as he was. In 1882, the British fought a brief war against Egypt in order to protect their investments in the country from a rising nationalist movement. For the next 40 years, Egypt became a protectorate of the United Kingdom. While it was never technically a colony, Egypt remained a strategically and economically important holding for the British Empire. The final person for whom the Egyptian campaign was a victory, odd as it may sound, was Napoleon himself. It is true that the expedition failed to accomplish its goals. Napoleon frequently lamented this fact, and it would seem that this failure haunted him to the very end. In exile on the isolated island of St. Helena, Napoleon was quoted as saying the following, quote, I would have done better to remain in Egypt. By now I would have been emperor of all the East. If Acre had but yielded to the French army, a great revolution would have taken place in the Orient. I would have founded an empire there, and the destiny of France would have been left to take another course. The smallest things can bring about the greatest events. If only Acre had fallen, I would have changed the face of the world." End quote. But while the Egyptian expedition had indeed been a military catastrophe, it was a political victory for Napoleon. As I mentioned prior, Napoleon's reports back to France were greatly embellished. People back in France were under the impression that the Egyptian campaign had been a massive success in every sense. It was this popularity that convinced the conspirators of the coup of Brumaire to enlist Napoleon's assistance. In this way, Napoleon's Egyptian expedition was a factor which led more or less directly to his seizure of power. When the French were finally forced to withdraw, the blame was placed squarely on Generals Colbert and Minot, and Napoleon was already secure in his position as First Consul. Years after the fact, certain incidents from the Egyptian expedition, such as the Battle of the Pyramids or the Visitation of the Plague Victims, were utilized by Napoleon for propagandistic purposes. They became a part of the lore that Napoleon built up around himself as he continued to consolidate his power. The Egyptian campaign obviously had far-reaching impacts on the history of France, Egypt, the Ottoman Empire, and Britain, but it also had a significant impact on the arts and sciences. The most significant development in this regard during the campaign was the discovery of the Rosetta Stone. This massive basalt slab, engraved with copies of a pharaonic declaration in three different languages, was the key to deciphering the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic script. As a condition of General Minot's surrender, the stone was handed over to the British, hence why the Rosetta Stone is currently located in the British Museum in London. Various British and French scholars worked to decipher the decree found on the stone, although credit for this mostly goes to Jean-Francois Champollion. Although the Institute of Egypt was officially disbanded following the capitulation of Alexandria, its work was compiled in the Description of Egypt, a massive work spanning 37 volumes, which were published gradually between 1809 and 1829. This was the culmination of Napoleon's instructions, in the words of Edward Said, to quote, divide, deploy, schematize, tabulate, index, and record every aspect of Egypt, end quote. 
This work is often credited for starting the modern field of Egyptology in the West. European scholars became so invested in the field that the Institute of Egypt was actually refounded in 1836 as the Egyptian Society. This was initially a collaboration between Egyptologists from France, Britain, and Germany, but by the turn of the century, native Egyptians had joined the Institute as well. As far as I can tell, the Egyptian society continues to operate to this very day. The building which housed the original institute was partially destroyed during the Egyptian Revolution of 2011, when an errant Molotov cocktail set the building ablaze. Bystanders rushed into the building to save as many texts as they could, but 170,000 of the 200,000 volumes housed within the building are reported to have been lost to the fire. Even with the benefit of retrospect, it can be difficult for us to understand the reasons why the French campaign in Egypt was undertaken in the first place. Was it a strategic move to cripple British trade with the East? Was it an effort by the French to make Egypt into a colony? Was it a cynical move by the Directory to discredit the rising General Bonaparte? Or was it all a project of Napoleon's famously inflated ego? A more substantive question is, did this project ever actually stand a chance of succeeding? If you have any thoughts on the questions that I just posed, or have constructive criticism, comments, suggestions, or anything else you'd like me to hear, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook, links to which will be in the description of this episode. In any event, this episode concludes our series on the French expedition to Egypt. I hope you have enjoyed this retelling of one of the more bewildering chapters of French Revolutionary and Middle Eastern history. It has been my honor and my pleasure to be your guide on this journey. Do be sure to tune in again in two weeks for the last series of Season 1 of the Historia Dramatica podcast, as the podcast travels to Japan to cover the life and times of controversial Japanese author and political activist Yukio Mishima. Until then, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.